The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Good morning, everyone. Um, if you've been here at ICC for any amount of time and you've gone through sort of a, a, an annual cycle with us, you've, you'll probably have heard me talk about the importance of these um, holiday seasons in our calendar and to say that, uh, especially when we look at the way that it was practiced in Old Testament days with the Jews, uh, for us usually a holiday represents a, a single day that you kind of... Um, have a party or something like that and you move on but when you look at the bible what you find is that these holidays were over an extended season days uh where you were just invited to dwell in the meaning of that event for an extended period of time and so you know we're heading toward christmas which is just one day in the calendar year but we also talk about celebrating advent as a whole season in which we sort of pause from um, just the normal routines that we go through and just try to, for an extended period of time, remember what this holiday represents, which is one of the most significant events in history when God became a man. And so that's why even with our Jeremiah series, we're kind of hitting the pause button. And uh, I have a couple more messages in that book of Jeremiah that I'd like to explore with you, but we're going to do that until, uh, hold that off until January where we can continue that. But for now, for the next three messages, starting today, really reflect on this idea of what it means um, that God became a man. And particularly in light of the theme that we've chosen, it's this idea that God, this invisible being, became invisible form, a human being, that we could actually see with our own eyes and just exploring the wonder of that. And particularly, Look at Jesus Christ as this perfect representative of who God is, the Father, and helping us to understand what his nature is like, what he is like. And so we want to begin that series this morning with this message, uh, which is entitled, Reaching for an Invisible God. You know, when you read through the pages of the Bible, it is filled with this language of relationship. The very opening pages of the Bible tells us that God created us so that he could have a relationship with him. We're told that our God is a personal God who wants to have a deep and intimate love relationship with us. And, and the truth is, using language like love is it's a little startling for even a lot of religious people of other religions because you don't often associate those two, you know, worship, reverence, fear, yes. But love strikes a lot of people as an odd word to use to describe what it means to relate with God. But in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus makes it very clear. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That is the fundamental characteristic of our relationship with God is love. God is, in other words, not a subject to be studied or a, a concept to be explored from a distance. God is a person. And as a person, he desires relationship with us. But in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells us another fundamental truth about God. 
uh, when he was speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. In John chapter 4, verse 24, it says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And therein lies the problem. God is spirit. He is an invisible being that we cannot see with our eyes or hear with our ears or touch with our fingers. And so it raises this fundamental question, how do I have a relationship with an invisible being, an invisible God? Well, when you look at the Bible, it gives us some answers to this problem. And it says, you know, the Bible says that faith is key to entering into this relationship with an invisible God. Faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him, speaking of God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So when we look at Hebrews 11.6, I think the first thing that we have to acknowledge is that because God is spirit, because he is invisible, simply believing that God exists is an act of faith. This is, that's the, the starting point, is to believe that we worship a God who is there. But believing that God exists is only the starting point of faith. To have faith in God is far more than simply believing that he exists somewhere in our universe. As the writer of Hebrews points out, having faith in God also means that we have to believe certain truths about the kind of person that he is. Specifically in this verse, it says that he is a God who rewards those who seek him. He rewards those who seek him. I think that's another way of saying that God not only exists, but he also determines any favor that you hope to find in this life. God alone is the one who determines blessings and curses in your life. He alone is the one who ordains everything that happens in your life. He is the only one that you can turn to. That's faith. He is the ultimate rewarder of my life. Richard Phillips says, Few people deny the existence of God, but many deny the relevance of God. Do I have to deal with God? Do I need to pay attention to Him? To listen as He speaks? To open my heart to a relationship with Him? To let Him change the way I live? To make Him the great hope for the whole of my life? The answer, according to God's own revelation in the Bible, is yes. Yes. You must not only believe that he exists, but that he alone is the rewarder of those who would seek him. And so you must seek him. But I think it is on this particular point that many of us get tripped up in our relationship with God. What exactly does it mean that he rewards those who earnestly seek him? As your pastor, I know that many of you in this room have some pretty powerful testimony of how God came through for you in one way or another. Often, we would 
not shy away from using the word miracle of illnesses that were healed, of circumstances that were dramatically changed against all odds, of near disasters averted. But I can also say this, is that for every one of those stories of God miraculously intervening, there are just as many stories where it felt like God didn't show up. Loved ones who were not spared. Disasters from which we were not rescued. Prayers that seemingly went unanswered. That raises some really serious questions, doesn't it? About what it means that God rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Most of us here are old enough to remember the Columbine High School massacre. I realize that we have youth in here, and this happened in April of 1999, and so I think some of you may not have been actually born yet, (laughs) so I apologize for the youth here. But I'm sure even if you weren't even born yet, you've heard about Columbine. It's become part of our vernacular, unfortunately, in America, where two high school students, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, committed what was up to that point the deadliest school shooting in U.S. history. And some of the testimonies that came out of that tragedy clearly point to the hand of God. Harrison Klebold had actually planted almost 100 explosive devices in the school. But we're not sure why. We have no scientific explanation for it, but almost none of them went off as planned. And who knows how many lives were spared because of that. And there's these stories of, of a child who was sick. So parents called him out right before the shooting happened. And that child was spared from the massacre. There's stories of these amazing kids that were shot almost point blank in the head and the face. And somehow the bullets hit them, but lodged in just the perfect place where it didn't hit any vital organs. And although they should have been dead, they lived. And so these testimonies come out of Columbine that seem to clearly demonstrate God's presence in the midst of this horrible tragedy. But for every one of those testimonies, what do we say to the parents of the 12 students who were killed that day? Some of whom were actually very devout Christians, we find out later. Were they just out of luck? Was God not with them? Philip Yancey writes about this nationally known leader, who Christian leader, who also has this uh, weekly radio show, who after a pretty serious illness, which he barely survived from, ended up with this really difficult crisis of faith. So quoting this Christian leader, Yancey writes, I have no trouble believing God is good. My question is more, what good is he? I heard a while back that Billy Graham's daughter was undergoing marriage problems. So the Grahams and the in-laws all flew to Europe to meet with them and pray for the couple. They ended up getting divorced anyway. If Billy Graham's prayers don't get answered, 
What's the use of my praying? I look at my life, the health problems, my own daughter's struggles, my marriage. I cry out to God for help. And it's hard to know just how he answers. Really, what can we count on for God? God, What can we count on God for? Commenting on this honest confession of this Christian leader, Yancey writes, that final question struck me like a bullet and has stayed lodged inside me. I know theologians who would snort at such a phrase as one more mark of self-centered faith. Yet I believe it lies at the heart of much disillusionment with God. In all our personal relationships with parents, children, store clerks, gas station attendants, pastors, neighbors, we have some idea what to expect. What about God? What can we count on from a personal relationship with Him? And I want to ask you that this morning. Have you ever struggled with these questions in your own life? What exactly can we count on God for? I mean, maybe some of you, you've been coming to ICC for a little while now. And you're saying, yeah, I mean, I come and hear about this, like, bipolar guy named Jeremiah who's like, just like, crazy and depressed half the time. And you're teaching me about this Babylonian captivity thing that happened, like, thousands of years ago. But my marriage is on life support. Or I just lost my job. Or I have a mother dying of cancer. And I don't see how these two worlds really connect with each other, you know? I've got real-world problems here that need to be solved. And where is God in that? Is he even relevant to what's happening in my life? Or do I just come here every week to hear stories about things that happened thousands of years ago? Is God really relevant to what's going on in your life? What can we expect of him when we ask him for his help? And if he doesn't come through for us, what went wrong? Whose fault is it? Is it God's or is it ours? It's interesting. I think the Israelites felt this frustration to understand the mysteries of this invisible God and to try to grasp his ways, how he works. In the days of the judges under the leadership of Gideon, They experienced this great military victory when 300 Israelite soldiers went into battle and defeated this giant horde of enemies. It was a miracle, no doubt about it. And after that battle was done, the Israelites came to Gideon in Judges chapter 8, verse 22, and they said this, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. In other words, what they were saying was, Gideon, we like you. We like following you. We think that things are going to be okay, and so we want you to be our permanent leader. Not only that, but we want your children and your grandchildren and every generation afterward to be our leader as well. In other words, we want you to establish a dynasty. Start a dynasty, Gideon, and you will become great among us. But Gideon knew that wasn't right. And so in verse 23, he replies to them. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. It's interesting. Fast forward some years later in the history of Israel, and the same thing happens again in the days of the prophets. 
into the days of Samuel. They again demand a human king to rule over them. The prophet Samuel warned them that this earthly king is going to abuse them and do all kinds of bad things to them. He's not going to treat you well. And he's going to demand everything from you and give you almost nothing in return. And life will be miserable. But they insist and say, we want an earthly king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19 to 20, it says, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That, that particular word that they used, judge us, was a jab against Samuel. Because his leadership, he was known as a judge who judged over Israel. And so they said, give us a king, not a representative of God like you are. Give us a king who will be our judge. And Samuel felt a sense of personal rejection of his own leadership that came out of that demand. But God makes it very clear to Samuel what's really going on here. Because in 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, it says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You know, as wrong as this attitude is, I think we wouldn't really be honest with ourselves if we couldn't have some sympathy for what these Israelites were asking for in wanting a human king like all the other nations had. Because a human king is someone that they felt they could understand, someone they could follow. There was a certain security and comfort in being able to actually see another person who is wearing a crown and leading the armies into battle. A human king is a known entity. He's someone that you can wrap your mind around and understand and relate to, who you can talk to and negotiate with, not this mysterious, spiritual, invisible God who comes and thunders and shakes mountains. It's interesting how Catholics pray to saints, I think. I know some of you actually come from a Catholic background. Rather than praying to God directly, and, and I wonder if that, that whole practice came from this same sentiment. It, it feels like a surer thing to go and pray to a person than it does to go directly to God. You know, if I pray to St. Patrick or St. Jude or whatever, then he knows what I'm going through. He can understand and he can advocate for me before this mysterious God that I cannot understand that remains a mystery to me feels like a, a surer thing that a fellow human being can help me out here, can understand my frailty and what I'm going through. Going to God directly feels too risky, too uncertain, too mysterious. I want to ask you this. What have been your own struggles in your faith journey, understanding God and his ways, especially when you feel that he has let you down? I think that there are a lot of Christians who basically keep our expectations of God in check. And we don't ask much of him out of the fear of being disappointed by him. Do you keep God at arm's length because you don't want your heart broken by yet another unanswered prayer? 
Philip Yancey says this, Everyone who believes in God carries around a basic assumption of how God acts in relation with us. The French novelist Flaubert said that a great writer should stand in his novel like God in his creation. Nowhere to be seen, nowhere to be heard. God is everywhere and yet invisible, silent, seemingly absent and indifferent. A few intellectuals may enjoy worshiping such an absentee God, but most Christians prefer Jesus' image of God as a loving father. We need more than a watchmaker who winds up the universe and lets it tick. We need love and mercy and forgiveness and grace, qualities only a personal God can offer. Yet the more personal conception of God we have, the more unnerving are the questions about him. Shouldn't a loving God intervene more often on our behalf? And how can we trust the God we can never confidently count on to come to our aid? There are difficult places to explore, aren't they? And to be honest about. I think one of the most powerful ways, though, that God answers these questions is by sending us his own son, Jesus Christ, to become a man and walk among us. And it raises some intriguing questions. If God becomes a man, what kind of a man would he be? What would he teach us about how to relate to this mysterious God in the way that he would live out his own life on earth? I'm going to say this. By becoming a man himself, Jesus showed us what it looks like as humans to have a relationship with God. That's what's so powerful about the incarnation is that when God took on flesh and blood, he answered many of these questions for us about what it means as human beings to live in that tension of a God who is spirit and invisible that we cannot see. It's interesting that the Bible gives us a lot of details that surround the birth of Jesus Christ. But then it is frustrating in its silence of his childhood. And it basically fast-forwards us into his adult life when he's about to begin his public ministry in his 30s. There's just one story we have in all the Gospels about Jesus as a child when he gets lost in the temple, right? Where not, he doesn't really get lost, but his parents lose him, right, in that temple. You know, it's interesting. There is this book called The Infancy Gospel of Thomas which was written hundreds of years after Jesus, that tried to fill this void and tell us what the child of a Jesus was like. It's interesting also that this book was never accepted even from the earliest days as being an authentic gospel, but by the church leaders was clearly rejected as a false gospel. And this infancy gospel of Thomas records all kinds of crazy stories about the child of Jesus. It tells us that when baby Jesus was still in the crib as an infant, he could talk like an adult. And Mary was shocked when he started talking to her. When baby Jesus was washed in the bathwater, that bathwater became magical. And you could use it to sprinkle it on lepers, and they were healed of their leprosy. 
When Jesus was a boy, the story goes that when he was bored, he would make these clay animals like birds. And then just because he could, he would make them fly. <laughs> so you see these clay birds flying around Nazareth. In his anger one day, because some kids were acting bratty, Jesus, boy, baby boy Jesus, Turn these kids into goats. <laughs> One day, a teacher got mad at him because he thought he was acting insolent when he was just being God. <laughs> and so the teacher lifted up a whip and was going to whip boy Jesus. And the teacher died instantly. In fact, if you read this Gospel of Thomas, there's many, both adults and children, who die instantly because Jesus is irritated with them. Because why not? He can, right? It's the perk of being God. <laughs> you can kill anyone that you want. I think you can see why this infancy gospel of Thomas was rejected <laughs> as not being authentic from the very earliest days. This is the superhero version of the gospel where Jesus can and does do anything he wants because, after all, he is God. It, I think the truth is that infancy narrative of Thomas captures what we wish God would be like if he became a man, right? If we're really honest. Instantly punishing everyone who does wrong and getting everything he wants. Because that's like a fantasy that all of us wish we could live in. If we had the powers that God did, I mean, who wouldn't do that, right? You're a goat, you're a goat, you're a goat, right? Because you don't like you very much, and you're dead, you know? Um, it's scary, right? But we kind of think going, yeah, like if God became a man, why wouldn't he do that if he had the power to do that? But the actual Gospels found in the pages of our Bible tell us a very different story of a child who grew up in poverty and obscurity. His parents were too poor to afford a lamb which was required by the law of Moses to purify Mary after the birth of Jesus. And so instead, they offered a loophole that was given in the law for poor people, two turtle doves. His earliest years were spent in terror, hiding as refugees in Egypt, a foreign land. It's believed that Jesus' father, Joseph, died when Jesus was still pretty young. Because after that story in the temple, Joseph is never mentioned again in any of the Gospels. And he's presumed to have died. And what we see in the picture painted Is, is that God didn't give his own son any special privileges, but let, would let him experience all of the difficulties and sufferings of humanity that he would go through in life. Jesus would know it all and experience it firsthand. One of the most surprising things that we learn about God through Jesus 
is his gentleness and his humility. Quoting the prophet Isaiah, the Gospel of Matthew describes Jesus like this. Matthew chapter 12, verse 18 to 20. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And this was very confusing to the Jews, because gentleness and humility are not terms that you typically associate with an almighty God who can do everything. And especially not the God that they saw in the Old Testament that often seemed to be so frightening. We tend to think of God as a being who always operates from a position of strength and authority. Maybe even when you read the Old Testament, it can even feel a little bit like he's a bully, you know? Like he always gets his way and he does everything he wants to do and all you can do is sit there and take it. And, and then you get to the Gospels and you see this picture of a God that is incredibly meek and gentle. And it's not easy to reconcile those two pictures. G.K. Chesterton says this, Christianity is the only religion on earth that has felt that omnipotence made God incomplete. Christianity alone has felt that God, to be holy God, must have been a rebel as well as a king. Alone of all creeds, Christianity has added courage to the virtues of the Creator. For the only courage worth calling courage must necessarily mean that the soul passes a breaking point and does not break. I think what Chesterton's saying is profound. He's saying we can add to the qualities not only meekness and humility and gentleness, but also courage. Now, courage is a positive trait, but I think there is a an underbelly to courage, right, is that it sort of implies that there is a fear that must be overcome. And that doesn't really make sense to attribute a quality like that to a being who is all-powerful. Why does an all-powerful being even need to talk in the language of courage? He fears nothing. But when Jesus comes, He needed courage to face the things that he had to face in his life. It's interesting that Chesterton calls him a rebel. When I first read that part of the quote, it kind of bothered me. Why is he calling Jesus a rebel? (laughs) That's like unbiblical, you know? But the more I thought about it, I understood what Chesterton was trying to say. He was saying that Jesus, when he became a man and came to the earth, though he was God, did not operate from the position of power or authority. That was the Romans. That was the Jewish religious leaders. Instead, he came without any of that power, and so he was labeled a rebel, a problem maker, a dissident, someone that had to be dealt with and truthfully ultimately killed. And it's amazing to me that when God became a man, he took on that position of weakness. 
when he should have come in our expectations from a position of strength and authority. Operating from this position of weakness was, I think, most powerfully, one of the most powerful ways he displayed it during his life was when he entered that wilderness at the start of his ministry to face Satan, the great adversary, and to take him head on in the desert. Matthew chapter uh, chapter 4, verse 1 to 10, tells the story. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It's interesting. Jesus, like our champion, marches into the wilderness to take on the great adversary, Satan. But the way that the battle actually plays out in the desert is very different than what we would expect. I mean, what we know is that Jesus being God could have snuffed out Satan. It wasn't really a fair fight, right? If Jesus wanted, he could just flick him like a flea. But he doesn't do that. And it's kind of confusing to understand how Satan tempts Jesus by telling him to turn bread, uh, rock into bread. And then taking him to the height and saying, throw yourself off and God will catch you with his angels. That's what he says in his word. It's confusing because what would have really been wrong if Jesus did that? It's hard to know where the sin lied in these temptations. I think the truth is what Satan was doing was it was playing into the expectations of what a Messiah would be, a Savior. Exert your power, Jesus. What good is it being a Messiah if you don't get to use any of your power? If you are a Savior, act like one. Prove it. Dazzle us. Dazzle the world with what you can do. In essence, the sum of what Satan was tempting Jesus to do was to exert his own will to accomplish the mission for which he was sent on the earth to do. And here's the key part of it, to do it without the suffering and without the pain. He is starving. He has not eaten in 40 days. I think everything looks like food to him. And so Satan says, why are you going through this unnecessary discomfort? Why don't you satisfy yourself and turn these rocks into bread and provide for yourself and 
Jesus says something really important back. I am not going to take this into my own hands and satisfy my own hunger with my own ability. I am going to feed on the word of God and not even on this physical food because that is my strength. That is my power. And Satan hears that and he takes that key and goes, oh, you, you are a man of the word then, huh? You, you really live for God's word. Well, look at what it says in the word itself. God says that if you are the chosen one, the Messiah, that he is going to protect you with his angels so that not a hair on your head could be damaged. So here we are on this height. If you are such a man of the word, let's see that word in action. Jump off of the ledge and let God prove himself true to his word. And Jesus replies, I will not force God's hand like that and test him. I am going to trust him. It's interesting. Then finally, the third temptation, Satan says, bow before me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. In other words, that's what the Father had promised Jesus. But that was going to come after the cross, after the crucifixion. And in essence, Satan is saying, I can give you everything the Father is promising you without the cross, without the suffering, without the pain. You see, all of these temptations had to do with tapping into Jesus' desire for security, for comfort, for safety. And what Jesus, in essence, replied to the devil was, I am not going to take any of these shortcuts that you offer me to fulfill my mission or to find comfort and relieve the suffering and the pain. I am going to wholly lean on my Father and depend on Him alone in this distress that I feel. In other words, He was saying, I am going to live under the full constraints of what it means to be human. Not that silly Jesus who turns kids into goats because He's irritated with them. He says, I am going to accept all of the weakness, all of the limitations, all of the suffering that God has ordained for me to go through. And I'm going to do it trusting him every step of the way, depending on him to get me through this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, in Jesus, we have something really fascinating we have both a picture of what God is like in his gentleness and meekness and often his mysterious ways. He doesn't always act from a position of power and authority and strength in the way that we wish he would to fix every injustice and right every wrong and heal every disease and solve every problem. He doesn't always operate from that position. But we also have a picture of what it means to be fully human. 
and live under that leadership of a God who often acts this way. And what we find in the example of Jesus is a trusting surrender to the will of God that can pray for deliverance and ask for the miracle, but also wait on God when we feel that the miracle is not coming. I will take no shortcuts to the path of glory. I will not take matters into my own hands and engineer my own outcome to get the result I want. I will wait on God. I will wait on him with faith and patience and perseverance. One last quote that I want to read from Yancey as I close the message is this. Sometimes I concede I wish that God used a heavier touch. My faith suffers from too much freedom, too much temptations to disbelieve. At times, I want God to overwhelm me, to overcome my doubts with certainty, to give final proofs of his existence and his concern. I want God to take a more active role in human affairs as well. If God had merely reached down and flicked Saddam Hussein off the throne, how many lives would have been saved in the Gulf War? If God had done the same with Hitler, how many Jews would have been spared? Why must God sit on his hands? I want God to take a more active role in my personal history too. I want quick and spectacular answers to my prayers, healing for my diseases, protection and safety for my loved ones. I want a God without ambiguity, one to whom I can point for the sake of my doubting friends. I believe God insists on such restraint because no pyrotechnic displays of omnipotence will achieve the response he desires. Although power can force obedience, only love can summon a response of love, which is the one thing God wants from us and the reason he created us. Let's pray. I think there is this undeniable expression of faith that can actually expect a miracle. God the deliverer. God the divine warrior who fights on behalf of his people. God the healer. I think that the Bible teaches very clearly that this is his ministry toward us in many ways. But it's confusing. The Bible is also interspersed in the midst of all of these miraculous deliverances of saints of God who have struggled, waiting and waiting for an answer that just doesn't seem like it comes. And this is sort of the mystery of what it means to relate to this God who is spirit, who is invisible, whose ways are so confusing to us at times. And when God became a man through the person of Jesus Christ, he brought a certain clarity to that picture that I think is very instructive for us. He showed us a God that is meek and humble and gentle, who often chooses not to operate from that position of power and authority that he rightfully has, but often operates from a perspective that often feels weak to us, ineffective, frustratingly so. I don't know if we really want a gentle God. I don't know if we really want a God that would not bruise a reed or snuff out a flickering candle. I think we want God in the storm and in fire and in the shaking of Mount Sinai, frankly. 
But in Jesus Christ, we see this gentle Savior who comes humble. And Jesus shows us what the life of obedience and surrender looks like in the way that he lived out his life. Especially that day when Satan tempted him in the wilderness and said, you are the son of God. Why don't you exercise some of your God-given right and deliver yourself out of all of this misery that you're in? And to show us what that life of obedience looked like, he resisted Satan's temptations and instead passively underwent that suffering to show us what we, our lives ought to look like in the midst of times when we feel like what is being asked of us is patience and faith and perseverance. And Jesus lights a way for us to show us that that life is possible. And the same spirit that led Jesus to the wilderness is with us to enable us to live that same life of faithfulness before him. So let me invite you to this moment of reflection and prayer as you wrestle with these issues. Where is God when I'm hurting? Is he even relevant in my life? Why does it seem like some prayers get answered spectacularly and others seem to go unheard? And in the person of Jesus Christ, we realize that God is far more mysterious in the way that he will accomplish his will than we could ever understand. And we, in our humility, must get to that place of just surrender, saying, not my will, but yours be done, God. I'll wait on your timing. I'll trust in your methods. Let your will be done in my life. Would you just pray that for a few minutes as our worship team comes to lead us? in a time of response. Let's pray.